I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 80th episode of Talking Golf History, the story of the champion without a major. Today, we share the story of the only man to have ever played in the World Series and played in the Masters, the story of Sam Bird who Bobby Jones once said of him, he's the best driver of the golf ball I ever saw. Averaging 300 yards off the tee with drives that seemed to be hit on a line. Sam Bird won a World Series with Babe Ruth and was then convinced to leave baseball to become a professional golfer by Bobby Jones himself. And in the process, he nearly won both the Masters and the PGA Championship. Without further ado, the champion without a major, with our returning guest, John Fisher. Welcome back to the Talking Golf History Podcast, John. Oh, well, thank you, Connor. Glad to be with you. You know, the last time you were on the show, you shared the story of your father, who was the last golfer to win a major championship using hickory-shafted clubs. And, as it turns out, one of our most popular shows, There is a Gangster on the Green which told the story of the golfing gangster assassin who was arrested while playing in the Western Open. Today, we're going to discuss one of golf's more fascinating characters, a name which I am guessing 99.9% of our listeners have never heard of, a professional golfer with the nickname Babe Ruth's Legs, Sam Bird, the only man in history to have played in a World Series and the Masters, the champion without a major. John, how did you even discover the Sam Bird story? Well, I didn't really discover it. Uh, uh, I had written some articles for uh, Morning Read, which is now the morning golf publication of Sports Illustrated. And uh, the editor had heard of this uh, fellow who was both a baseball player for the Yankees and then the Reds and then became a uh professional golfer and did very well at that. Uh, so I started doing research on Sam Bird and was fascinated by this guy. And what's crazy is your father probably knew him. I mean, they played at the same time, basically, right? Uh, yes, they, they did. Uh, although uh, Bird was more uh, a baseball player at the time. My father was at his peak. But then I guess the last half of the 1930s, uh, they would have uh, run across each other. And uh, Sam Bird, uh, we'll get into a little later, I guess, but had played in the Masters and then continued to play in the Masters uh, for a while after the, after the war. And my father started going down to the Masters in 1948. And so I'm sure they bumped into each other either in golf or uh, at the Masters uh, sometime during the careers, although my dad never mentioned him. Uh, uh, but then again, he didn't talk a lot about all the people he'd met or known. He probably, probably didn't have enough time to talk about all the people he'd met and known, right? Probably true. <laughs> So what, what can you tell us about Sam Bird's upbringing? Like, you know, how did he get into baseball and golf? It's, you know, you don't see that combination with multi-sport athletes today. No, we don't. And uh, it, he sort of got into both of them uh, while he was in high school in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. He played uh, basketball and baseball in high school but he also was a caddy at the local golf club. So his uh, exposure to both sports 
took place at about the same point in his life. And uh, then he took the baseball route uh, after high school. His dad was uh, was in construction work and had trained Sam to be a bricklayer. But uh, (laughs) when the opportunity came along to play professional baseball at the uh, Class D level in the minor leagues, he, he took that and started off uh, uh, seriously playing baseball, but playing a lot of golf on the side. And about what time are we looking? Is this Great Depression time? What are we looking at there from a timing standpoint? From a time standpoint, he started playing baseball uh, in 1926 in the minor leagues. And then he did play on uh, for 10 years through the 1936 season with the Reds. Whereas uh, he didn't play all the time with the Reds, but he played baseball all that time. And do we know how good of a baseball player he was? Do we get a, do you, did you get an impression from your research? Well, um, he was snapped up pretty quickly because he, he started playing in 1926 uh yeah, you know, played for several teams: the Birmingham Barons, the Jonesboro Buffaloes, the Alexandria Reds, the Knoxville uh, Smokies, and then in 1928, the uh, uh, Yankees signed him to a contract, and he played one year with the Yankees farm team, the Albany Senators. And then in 1929, he was playing with the Yankees. So pretty quickly in a three-year period, he went from the uh, minor leagues to what was then probably the top team in the... Yeah, like maybe one of the greatest teams ever, right? Like baseball-wise, I mean, 29 Yankees, I mean, that's... Wow, right? It's it's amazing because uh, uh, he's only you know, in his, in his, uh, early twenties when he starts out and, uh, just moved really, really quickly, uh, in, in, uh, into baseball, you know, it was good and it was bad that he was with the Yankees because he was overshadowed by so many top yeah. players. Yeah. I mean, a murderer's row, right? <laughs> He's literally on murderer's row and right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, did he get much playing time? I can't imagine you're going to get a lot of playing time behind the likes of Ruth and Gehrig and, you know, all those amazing Yankee greats of the 20s. No, he didn't. He was basically hired uh, originally to be uh, uh, an outfielder to substitute for Earl Combs, who was center fielder at the Yankees and a Hall of Fame member. Uh, so he did a lot of bench sitting and then he started, uh, backing up Ray, Babe Ruth, uh, and fortunately for him in his first season with the Yankees and unfortunately for Ruth, Ruth was ill for quite a uh, while, like a two week period or so. And so he took over for Ruth in the outfield playing right field. And, uh, it was he was noticed by a lot of sports writers what a great fielder he was. Uh, and uh, uh, he wasn't as good a, a hitter. As, uh, <laughs> Who was, right, John? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's playing in the shadow of Babe Ruth. It's, it's hard to overshadow him at, the, at, at, at bats. But uh, he batted... Uh, 274 over his eight seasons uh, with uh, major league teams. And he had a uh, 412 or 0.412 slugging percentage, uh, meaning basically a measurement of how many extra base hits you hit. Uh, So um, 
I'm not a big baseball expert. Yeah, I, I think you wrote in the article that he, he batted like something like 317, filling in for Ruth during that period. Like he definitely held his own. I mean, noticeably different than Babe, obviously, but you know, there he he was you know getting on base and making you know getting his base hits. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he his out his outfield play was was recognized. He played all three positions in the outfield. Uh, over his career, but in uh, uh, 1934, still playing for the Yankees, he led the uh, American Re- League outfielders with a .988 fielding percentage. And uh, one of the lists shows him as a, a 100% fielding uh, that year, but uh, I, I don't know how. I guess it depends on you score things, I guess somebody saw a couple of errors that somebody else didn't in these records because they don't match up uh, all the time. But uh, uh, he, he obviously was of value to the Yankees as a baseball player. And uh, having a guy who was a good fielder to cover for your Hall of Fame fielders uh, is uh, a nice attribute. And since they didn't have all those free agency stuff and everything, he was sort of stuck with the Yankees until they traded him to the Reds. Yeah, that back in a time when they basically owned owned you, right? I mean, they had all right. of your rights. You didn't you didn't get you couldn't really ask to be traded back then. You know right. the uh, and then he he earned one of the great you know nicknames, Babe Ruth's legs. How did that, how did that come about? I mean, you don't hear many you know uh, cool nicknames like that. Well. Uh, Babe Ruth was, uh, uh, in later years was getting sort of out of shape. And so a lot of times when he would get a hit late in the game and be on base, uh, they'd send bird in as a pinch runner for Babe Ruth. Uh, cause the babe was sort of, you know, babe, babe only runs the bases for home runs, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, he could trot around on those home runs. But if he had to really make a move from first or second to the next base, uh, he was a little ponderous uh, in base running at that point of his career. So Bird was apparently pretty quick, and uh, they would put him in, and then he might finish up the game for in the outfield for an inning or two uh, after after that. Probably depending on how well the yeah you know, how the score was going, right? Yeah, yeah. So and they ended up striking up a pretty good friendship, didn't they? Uh, Babe Ruth and Sam Bird. They became very good friends. They were roommates on the road uh, when the team traveled, and uh, Babe loved to play golf, and uh, so did Sam Bird. So when they had off time, uh, they would go out and play nine holes, eighteen holes together uh, and uh, they played uh, for the amount of money that they were making they played some pretty expensive games like ten dollar Nassau's but but you know birds making uh, less than ten thousand uh, dollars as a, a year as a baseball player uh, so you know losing money on the golf course could be expensive for him, but he sort of modestly admitted he came out ahead <laughs> on those bets over the, yeah. over the course of, he did. Okay. <laughs> but, but one of the things that, that really, you know, it, it's funny, he's better golfer than babe, but babe teaches him how to be a better hitter in baseball. Yeah. How did he do that? He had this, Babe had this theory uh, uh, that you wanted your whole body in the uh, baseball swing. And he felt that your left arm ought to be connected to your body until you hit the ball. So he would practice that by putting a towel or a glove or something like babe ruth would practice doing that yeah babe. oh i did not know that and and that's where and he taught that to sam bird 
for baseball. That uh, the baseball that way, Ruth felt uh, that your left arm uh, acted as a hinge, and uh, at the hinge was the elbow, and you didn't want. Uh, but the uh, shoulder was attached to the left arm. So you're in baseball, especially. Uh, most of the players have their weight on the right foot when they're hitting and they step into it and put their whole body into it. Well, this was Babe's theory of maximizing your upper strength. And uh, Sam Bird started to do that uh, playing baseball and he adapted that to his golf swing. Yeah. And I mean, who, what golfer doesn't know you know, the drill of putting a towel underneath your left armpit when you swing to stay connected, right? Right. Amazing. It's I mean, I, it's possible. Is it possible that that whole, like, swing theory, you know, is that is it possible that starts with Babe Ruth? I think so. Isn't that unbelievable? That's a crazy revelation. Well, the the reason I think so is sort of a, I mean, it's, it's called a connectivity theory, but there's a... It, there are some connections here uh, that uh, Sam Bird learns this uh, from Babe Ruth and uh, uses it in his golf swing. And then later on when he's on tour, he gets to know Ben Hogan. And he and Hogan discuss the golf swing a lot. And Hogan's a terrible hooker of the golf ball. Uh he never knew what was going to happen to him. Uh, and uh, he, he said it was uh, playing golf like with a rattlesnake in your pocket. You never knew when and if it was going to strike. So Hogan's out there afraid he's going to hook the ball all the time. And Bird says to him, keep your left arm, you know, do the towel theory. Uh, keep your left arm in there. And Hogan did. And that's, although Hogan never admitted it, uh, when he started doing that, he stopped hooking the ball. Wow. And so um, the, the thing that's sort of, I don't know whether people would have expected Hogan to acknowledge this, but he and Bird talked by phone all the time after Bird uh stopped playing the tour and all and Hogan was becoming coming into his peak bird had uh, stopped playing professional golf and retired to a uh, driving range that he bought in a, a par three course that he owned and gave lessons but he talked with Hogan on the phone all the time and if you read Hogan's five lessons the uh, modern fundamentals of golf, you'll see some of the stuff in it because it, the concept is also sort of something else that goes with the left arm is that you sort of feel like you're hitting the golf ball by th throwing a ball underhanded with your right hand. So Hogan put a lot of names on these, you know, pronation and all this kind of stuff that, that drove people crazy and made them go to dictionaries trying to figure out what <laughs> Right. <laughs> but this is basically what, what uh, he picked up from Sam Bird. Who picked it up from Babe Ruth, John. Crazy. Picked it up from Babe Ruth. And then to go further, Sam Bird hires an assistant at his driving range named Jimmy Ballard. And Jimmy Ballard goes on in the 80s to become a top teacher and teaches Curtis Strange and uh, several uh, other uh, players uh, his method of connectivity, which is the connectivity theory of Babe Ruth and baseball translated into golf. I mean, I didn't even know this story. My, am I, I'm still like calculating how much my mind is blown thinking about that drill going back to Babe Ruth. That's crazy. I did not yeah. expect that twist and turn from our interview today. That's fantastic. And uh, 
Babe Ruth was a left-hander, so he'd keep his cowl under his right arm as the leading arm. But then, so Bird's playing with him in a way when he's playing golf and seeing how this connectivity theory works. When he's looking at Bird, it's like looking in a mirror. So he's, you know, he's seeing what he's doing with his right arm and birds thinking I'm doing this, going to do this with my left arm. Um, and it you know, held true in batting practice, held true in the golf course that it worked. And the rest, as they say, up. is history, right? Right. <laughs> Although a little known history is, you know, and no one's run around saying, gee, the Sam bird really hit on something back in the, no kidding. The yeah. <laughs> right. Or Babe Ruth for that matter. They will today. John, this is why we do this. They will after today, right? Yeah, right. That's our goal. So I, I need you to tell the story of this this Ruth and Bird teaming up against a fairly well-known golfer who resided in Atlanta, because that's a doozy. And we learn a little bit more from that friendly match um, for a buck uh, about Sam Bird's game and one of the highlights of his prodigious pr- power. Yeah, he... In uh, 1933, um, the Red or the uh, Yankees are in Atlanta to play an exhibition game uh, against the Atlanta Crackers, which is a minor league baseball uh, team in Atlanta. And Bob Jones is on the board of directors of the Atlanta Crackers, and so he wants to play golf with Babe Ruth. And so Babe Ruth brings Sam Bird as his partner. And Jones brings a guy who's a pretty good golfer that he plays a lot of bridge with named Hal Sims. And they don't have a lot of time. uh, So they only play nine holes. And uh, Jones is watching Bird and just dumbfounded because here comes this guy uh, he's playing at Jones's home course, Eastlake, uh, and he's hitting drives over 300 yards right down the middle of the fairway. And Jones says, this, the, this guy's the best driver of the golf ball I've ever seen. And uh, so he actually, Jones actually measured one of uh, Sam Bird's drives at 316 yards. Of course, they're using steel shafted clubs. Yeah, but but, but they're uh, also using a rolled back golf ball. This is not the, you know, the nineteen thirty ball. In nineteen thirty one, they they you know changed the standards of the golf ball in theory to make it shorter. And here you have Sam Bird hitting these drives that were, you know, pre nineteen thirty drives and drives that we see now in the two thousand twenties. Right? Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, you didn't see people hitting those kind of drives. Uh, until fairly recently. I mean, you, you had some guys, uh, I can remember George Bayer being thought of as this great, you know, driver of the golf ball and how far he hit it over 300 yards, but he, he never did anything in, in, in golf as a, uh, long hitter. Uh, and then, you know, it didn't really, in I guess every era I had some guys who hit the ball like that. But here's a guy, as you as you say, with equipment that isn't like anything like it is today. Golf clubs off the rack, uh, golf balls that don't necessarily uh, uh, stay in the round <laughs> or aren't even necessarily round, uh, and don't have any of the pep that balls have been given today. Who's able to hit the ball the way he hit it and hit it straight? Yeah, so, and the other the other piece I find amazing, John, is that uh, it's not just Jones, right? There were pros throughout this era. I think Tommy Armour said something very similar about his uncanny ability to hit massive drives. Like this is yeah. this isn't one fluky round with Bob Jones where he just hit it on the screws. Like oh. he backs it up over and over and over and over, doesn't he? Yes, and a lot of guys see him, Tommy Armour. Sees him that same year uh, playing uh, 
uh, in events at Pinehurst and at the Miami Biltmore Open. And he says, uh, this guy's fabulous. And if he could really work on his game, uh, and, and instead of being a baseball player, he could be a terrific golfer. And yeah, and, and I guess not lost on that is he's a professional baseball player when this is all going down, right? I mean, right. he's not even committed to being a professional golfer yet. Well, actually, he turned professional golfer in 1933 while he was playing baseball. And I imagine that may have been, although I don't know for sure, how the USGA would have treated him as an athlete playing professional baseball and then playing golf, whether they would allow him to be an amateur. Yeah, because he was not. an amateur for a couple of years there, right? Right. And he, and he was playing in, in, in events as an amateur, but as a professional athlete. I didn't even think of that twist. Yeah. And then he turns professional in golf in 1933 while he's still playing baseball uh, and starts playing in events in the around spring training and during the or before spring training uh, gets started. Uh, he's playing part of the, the tour in Florida. Yeah, I saw this lovely article, John. After I read yours, I did so, you know, just went through newspapers.com and I found this great article. Um, you know, the, the Florida swing started at my club, Bel Air, uh, at the Florida West Coast Open. And uh, he played in, I think the week prior, he played in a, I guess you'd call it a professional golf event, but with only pro golfers. And he won it by 14 strokes. And the next year he was banned. <laughs> <laughs> from playing in the event because <laughs> there was no there was nothing close it was just him and then everybody else so they just said sam you're not invited to come back yeah well he was acknowledged as the best golfer in baseball and actually they had a uh baseball championship in uh, 1937 that he that he won maybe it's the one that it's about the same time you're talking about. Yeah, 37, 30. I think it was 30. I think he won it. And then the very next year, they they wouldn't let him play in it anymore. I just found that. I mean, the article is just hilarious. I read it because, you know, I, I wanted to know, quite frankly, if he had ever played my club, Bel Air, because, you know, I was like, he must have played in the Florida West Coast Open. And he did. And then as I'm looking up the Florida West Coast Open, you know, the paragraph right before that was him winning this, you know, professional golf ball or uh, go, I'm sorry, professional baseball uh, golf tournament and then being banned from any preceding events that they throw for baseball players, <laughs> which I, I just love that story. So do we know, by the way, I mean, did, did major league baseball have any issues or the Yankees with him being a two sport athlete? I mean, that was kind of rare in its time. I, I'm thinking back and I might be tripping all over myself. So I'm thinking, you know, the first thought was I think of like Bo Jackson, right. And Dion yeah. Sanders and then I'm like, gosh, who was before that? And I'm thinking maybe Jim Thorpe. But, I mean, that wasn't yeah. terribly common to my knowledge back then. No, it wasn't really. There were a few uh, like that. Uh, you had uh, Babe Zaharias. Yeah, absolutely. Know, from, well, that's, that's basically uh, switching from track and field to women's golf. And as you say, Deion Sanders being, you know, a superstar and, playing in the World Series and baseball and playing in two Super Bowls and football. Uh, uh, but you don't see much of that. Uh, you, you see you see a lot of these guys think they're going to go be able to play golf, and they're really good golfers, but they're not good enough to be in, you know, professional golfers uh, on, on tour. Yeah, it's crazy. So – at, at some point, though, he decides that, you know, he's, he's going to stop being a pro baseball player to concentrate on golf. What were the circumstances around, you know, Sam Bird walking away from, you know, baseball? I know he was a Yankee and then he got traded, but, you know, did something happen in the middle there? Well, he traded to the uh, uh, Reds uh, and plays two seasons uh, for them. Uh and I think the event that, that changed things for him was playing in the for the Reds. He played in the, the uh, first night game 
that was ever held in the major leagues. And it was a big deal. It was played at uh, Crosley Field, which was the Reds' home field. And they set it up with these overhead lights, uh, reportedly uh, 632 bulbs and these temporary lights around the field. And uh, it's a big deal. First night baseball, uh, President Roosevelt flips a switch at the White House and all the lights come on at Crosley Field. And he was there for that. That's amazing. And he's playing at that point in right field. Uh, and uh, he goes, he's chasing a ball. They're playing the Phillies. Uh, he's chasing a ball that looks like it's going to be a home run. Uh, he can't quite see where the wall is with the lights. And somebody yells to him, you got plenty of room. And so he keeps going. He jumps up in the air, catches the ball, hits the wall. Uh, falls to the ground, he's knocked out, and his right ankle is twisted. Uh, so, you know, they, <laughs> you know, shake it off, get back in there and play. But he said his right knee and his right ankle were never the same after that. And, and that uh, happened during the first night game, lit yes. up by artificial lights. That's amazing. Yeah. And so he plays one more. Uh, season with the Reds and they want to transfer him to a minor league team in the Red system and he says no he didn't want to do that uh, and the Cardinals want to sign him uh, and they offer him a $10,000 a year guaranteed contract now over the eight years he's only made $38,000 playing baseball and he's offered ten thousand. Yeah, good contract. Yeah, yeah, and that's a you know this amazing incentive. Uh, Branch rookie personally calls him and says, "We want you know we want you. This is a real deal. We want you over here in the Cardinals." And he says, "No, he's, he doesn't doesn't want to do it. He's hooked on golf. His bad leg doesn't seem to hurt him playing golf. He can walk, and even though." He has a swing that sort of throws his weight back on, on the to the right side in golf. His knee isn't a, a problem. For yeah, him. you don't really twist that, right? You kind of post up on it and then move forward, right? Interesting. Right. So uh, he's he decides to take golf full time, and uh, does, about what year does he take up golf full time? Then do we know? So that. Well, that would be 1937. Okay, uh, when he started out doing and then, that. So 1937 is that? I mean, is is that where he's cutting ties with baseball too, or is that, or is there a little uh, overlap? Uh, no, he's cut ties. Okay, so with, he's full time. I'm a professional golfer now. He's a full time professional golfer now, and uh, uh, you know he goes around and and. Uh, He's playing a lot of golf, but not playing that, winning a whole lot of stuff. Um, he doesn't win anything of note until 1939. He wins the Philadelphia Open Championship, and there were quite a few big tour players uh, playing in that event. Um, and... Uh, uh, one of them was Ed Dudley, uh, who was a pro uh, that he worked for as an assistant in Philadelphia. And um, what, was that uh, was that Philly Country Club? Yes. Okay. And then uh, uh, the the next year, though, uh, uh, Bird's invited to be the pro at. Uh, uh, Marion, and uh, so he goes on, and he he won uh, several things uh, as a professional. They, I don't know the exact totals because the uh, records are so unclear, and the PGA's uh, gives him credit for six tour wins, uh, and then they show some others. 
Yeah, I think he has uh, 11 total professional wins and maybe six on tour. Does that sound correct? Right. But there were other smaller tournaments that he won here and there that just weren't ranked as uh, uh, even other wins. Uh, But he pretty much uh, dominated uh, golf in uh, the Philadelphia area. Yeah. Well, in winning the Philly Open, that, that opens up a little piece of golf history. Um, cause it gets an invite to a very special place to play golf. Maybe dive into that. Yeah. Well, he wins that and that, uh, brings him up a little higher in the status and he gets an invite to play, uh, in the, uh, masters tournament. Uh, and thus starting history, right? I mean, cause then yes. you have the first man to, play in actually win a world series and play in the masters right yeah right his world series appearance was a substitution in right field in the bottom of the ninth inning uh (laughs) for ruth uh in a game the yankees swept the series he never had an at bat uh he never had to actually field for Ruth and you just filled, filled in. Uh, it, feel, it feels like a field of dreams moment. <laughs> yeah. Got to take the field, but never took an at bat in the world series. Right. So at the time, the master's field had certain sort of criteria. You had to be at a certain level. Uh, it was now by 1940, it was called the masters, but it was originally called the Augusta Invitational. And Jones invited the people to play. Well, he played with uh, Sam Bird back in 1933. It was a while earlier. So he knew he was a good golfer. And his employer for the golf season in Philadelphia, uh, Ed Dudley, was the pro at Augusta in the winter. So he's got two guys in his corner. Uh but in addition to that, his decision to uh, turn pro uh, back in 1933, uh, he discussed uh, in 1937, should he really take up this pro thing in golf seriously? And he discusses it with uh, Ed Dudley and Bob Jones. and. And they both say, yeah, you ought to. Uh, so three years later, he finds himself invited to the Masters after winning the Philadelphia Open. He finishes. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he gets into the Masters and he it's his first Masters. And he shows up, right? Right. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't an also ran. I mean, he was in it to win it there for, a, for you know, most of the tournament. Right. Well, he was he, he, that first year. He finished in fourteenth place, which was pretty respectable. Um, uh, a lot of guys would like to finish that high <laughs> the first time playing in the Masters, but uh, I guess the uh, course suited him. Uh, uh, they uh, say that it, it favors a person who plays right to left. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I, I think Nicholas might disagree with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but birds, a, a street hitter basically. So he can put the ball off the tee pretty much where he wants to and pretty far out. And having had a feel for the masters the next year, he finishes third, uh, with a round of, uh, and the tournament was won by Craig Wood. Craig Wood. I mean, and Craig Wood that year, I mean, that was his year. I mean, it seemed like, you know, he wins the U.S. Open, too. He, You know, that yeah. Craig Wood was on fire that year. Like, nobody seemed to be able to beat Craig Wood. So, and he was right there. I think after the third round, um, Sam Bird shot a 68 and took right. solo second. Was only a couple strokes behind Wood at the time. Like, it, it, right. he looked, like, really good in that position. Yeah, and he fell back a bit. I mean, I don't know if it was the pressure or what, 
Uh, Nelson sneaked ahead of him, uh, at, finished at 283. Uh, but Sam Bird still was there. He was one stroke ahead of Hogan and four strokes ahead of Sam. Steve. Yeah. And he's ahead of what? Four other than those two gentlemen. He's had have four previous Masters winners and seven previous U.S. Open winners. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. And he's only a couple months shy of turning 35. You know, it's his second year in the Masters, and, you know, he's already, you know, old age back then. I mean, you didn't see a whole lot of people other than Hogan later on winning past, you know, the age of 40. And here he is, a 35-year-old, you know, just right out there with everybody else. Yeah, right, right in the mix. And then the next year, he comes back, and he starts off with back-to-back 68s in 1942. And then he sort of, I wouldn't say fell apart, but he shot 74 and 75, and again finished at 285. Uh, and uh, uh, he was... Well, it was Nelson and Hogan ended up in a playoff. Uh, so uh, he basically finished fourth because uh, uh, Paul Runyon was in third place, finishing uh, just behind Nelson and, and Hogan. But again, he's right up there with the star guys. And then uh, the Masters is canceled. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the tragedy here, John, don't you think? Is that, I mean, listen, everybody had their career interrupted. Like, what would Ted Williams's numbers look like if not for World War II? But uh, Bird's position is unique in that here he is, you know, a, a mid-30s player who picked up the game from a professional standpoint very late in life. And then World War II comes in and disrupts, I mean probably his best playing years, right? I mean, like right. most of the world just stops playing golf. Well, that's right. And, and uh, there are a lot of wartime uh, tournaments. He wins a, the Victory Open, which was sort of a somewhat like the U.S. Open. Uh, he wins the Greater Greensboro Open, which is – still around and I forget what sponsor's name is in charge of it now, but, uh, he wins that in 1943. Um, and then, you know, they, they talk about 1945, uh, Byron Nelson won 11 tournaments in a row. Sam Berg was second seven times to Byron Nelson. Oh, I did not know that factoid. That's an interesting so, one. So here you are. Everyone's talking about how great this Byron Nelson is. Well, Byron Nelson is Sam Bird's literal nemesis. He's like a shadow. Yeah. He's, he's right there behind him. Was it the Masters in 41? <laughs> Just right behind him there, too? Yes. Darn you, Byron Nelson. Right. And, and, and the key of those is the 1945 PGA Championship, right? Coming off the war, he's uh, Sam Bird's a couple sh- months shy of his 39th birthday now. Can, can you walk our audience through Sam Bird's performance in the PGA Championship, which, of course, back then was match play. So it was no easy event by any stretch. Yeah. Well, he'd, he'd played in the PGA before, and he'd never really done much before or after 1945 in the PGA. Uh, he'd been at the round of 16 once before, uh, but he goes to end up, ends up in the finals uh, at uh, Moraine Country Club in the PGA against Nelson. And uh, he's uh, three up on Nelson through 21 holes. Uh, but then... Uh, he falls back and Nelson ends up winning four and three. And the theory is, I don't know the explanation is that it got very windy and Nelson was a really good wind player and that he took advantage of the weather conditions that he played in better than bird. Yeah. I heard the same thing. I heard Sam, Sam bird was also a high ball hitter with those long drives. Yeah, and you know, long ball hitters in the wind versus the, those Texas boys who knew how to keep it low. 
uh, <laughs> definitely helped out. So he loses that, and uh, uh, still, I mean, he's back playing in the Masters again, and he plays some more golf, uh, but never really reaches that that height. Of course, ages. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean. Back when you, I mean, back then, again, I mean, being the outlier, I think Sneed also played, well, Sneed did play uh, to great heights in his 40s and even 50s, but it wasn't, you know, common for players to be, you know, peaking in their 40s, unlike Mr. Hogan. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he just caught, he had a, a what, 10-year career as a baseball player and added another decade and a half, I think, as a as a professional golfer. I mean, it's really, really remarkable career. And it's also one of those careers where you're like, what if? Like, you know, if Sam Bird, you know, starts with the Cardinals instead of going to the Yankees, does he ever, you know, does he become a professional golfer? And vice versa, if, you know, he would have started, you know, playing golf much earlier and taken it on as a professional sport earlier what might he have been? Yeah, those are good questions. And uh, at that time, I think there may have been something alluring about baseball and making that decision to play for a while longer uh, in that you had a a regular salary. Yeah, and during the Great Depression, to your point, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, and... you're not making much money playing golf uh, at that time. Uh, those tournaments for, you know, during the depression, leading money winners are six, $7,000. And uh, Bert isn't making that much playing baseball, but close to it. And uh, I think the, the time he enjoyed baseball and, I think it was really the being injured and and falling away from being how good he once was in baseball, realizing maybe that with his bad knee and bad ankle, he wasn't going to be a fast runner and he wasn't going to be able to capture the uh, hits that he used to in the outfield. And I think he that that made the decision for him. Although he didn't, he never said that. I'm just sort of assuming. Yeah. No, I get that. that that's what happened. What other tidbits do you have, John, on Sam Bird? Anything else come up in your research that stuck out to you? I mean, I'm still overwhelmed by the Babe Ruth uh, towel drill. I am. I'm. <laughs> my mind melted after that. I think I forgot half my questions <laughs> after you said that. <laughs> I I, uh, I I really don't know much more about the relationship. Well, let me get, let me ask you this one. This is my final question then. So, you know, I, I think Sam Bird could speak to this question as good as anyone. I know you brought it up in your article. Uh, how similar are baseball and golf? What were his thoughts of the golf swing and the baseball swing? And I, I know you had a great point in your article where he talked about the difference in intention that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, he... Basically, as far as the swing went, he thought the baseball swing and the golf swing were the same. And uh, the theory, again, it goes back in part to what some of Babe Ruth said uh, that fits into golf. Babe Ruth told him the baseball swing is like a table. It's got to be level. Uh, not, not, Not necessarily level in front of you, but it has to be on plane. Uh, you can't sort of reach up or reach down. Your whole swing from beginning to end is on the same plane. And for Sam Bird, uh, his thought was that the uh, swing was sort of like, the golf swing was sort of like uh, hitting a, a pitch that's low and outside. It's the same move, uh, it's on a plane, so he, he was he he was a believer in the I I, I guess we're going to throw it, you know go out there but but a one plane swing essentially something yeah. that we talk about all the time wasn't talked about way back then but you know he took that to be a one plane swing with a little bit obviously you're at a tilt so you're swinging the same but you're just kind of swinging down correct right 
that's that's his theory and uh i guess you know m mentally um if if that's what you uh see in your mind then that's what it is uh if you will <laughs> uh, it's hard, it's sometimes hard to explain or copy but for him it was it was easy well he was such a a good player uh that uh Grantland Rice, the sports writer, uh, thought that he ought to do a book, and uh, he would uh, co-write it with him. And his response to to that question was, uh, "Well, it's going to be a damn short book." <laughs> yeah, because he wanted him to look at like to explain how the baseball swing and the and the golf swing were like similar, right? <laughs> And he's right, like, right. yeah, it is. It's similar. That's the end of first and last chapter. <laughs> yeah, there were there was a time when I don't remember where it was. I think it was a in uh, Sports Illustrated. Maybe there was an article about could Sam Snead play baseball and could Ted Williams play golf? And they dissected the two and they said no. You know, Sam Snead, yeah, I could play baseball. Okay. And yeah, Ted Williams could play golf okay, but they couldn't play at a high level in their opposite sport. Um, so uh, he just was easy because he had himself thinking that was all it took when he did it. Um, but uh, it, it, uh, he, he did talk about, you mentioned tension. He did talk about the uh, difference in tension. Uh, and I think it it probably uh, is true, but he said that he thought that golfers had more tension than baseball players or were inclined to tighten up and uh, not swing loosely because they're hitting a stationary ball. And in baseball, the ball's moving. you got to stay loose, you know, sort of shifting back and forth in the batter's box, or if you're in the outfield, you're you know, moving your feet back and forth, you're ready to run if you have to, and golf, you're stationary. Uh, so he thought that uh, um, you you had movement built into golf or built into baseball naturally. And in golf, he thought the way to beat that was sort of to, when you were addressing the ball before you hit to sort of shift your weight back and forth a little bit between your feet. Brilliant, really, right? Take a swing and then uh, go ahead and swing and, you know, make a turn and uh, swing. Uh, and he also said that golf was a lonely game. You're by yourself. You, you know, you get credit for every good shot and every great putt. And there's no one to blame other than yourself. When you hit a bad shot, you go out of bounds, you miss a short putt or whatever. Uh, it's everything's on you from beginning to end, but in baseball, it's a team event. Uh, yeah. You know, you you might uh, miss out on something like a double play, but it might have been because the you know shortstop threw the ball to first baseman and he threw it in the right, a little too far for the base uh, first baseman to catch. So it's a team event, and you're all working with each other. And you don't blame yourself so much for things that uh, go wrong. And when things go wrong, uh, you know, the manager can come out and talk to the uh, uh, pitcher during the game. Uh, your field position coach can talk to you between innings. Uh, if you're doing something wrong. Uh, uh, guys, yeah, you're not, you're not out there on a ledge. Up. Yeah, yeah you're, they take an opportunity to huddle up during these occasions, uh, and uh, you don't have that. And uh, of course, it didn't work for Bird in 1935 when uh, someone told him he wasn't close to the wall. But turned <laughs> <laughs> out he was. But got advice from the wrong person. Some fan gave uh, him some bad advice. He, he said in the outfield, especially, they used to shout at each other where the ball was going and. You know, they there was communication, and you were getting help from your fellow players. Uh, the same thing with the you know, being told to steal a base or to keep going. 
uh, round third and head to home. You've got someone else who's watching the play and telling you what to do. You don't have to look over your shoulder. But in golf, there's no one, you know, a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of people to look at, but no one you're allowed to ask except your caddy. And in those days, the caddies were whatever you got. I mean, I tell you, I, I mean, I learned a lot here, John. I mean, but I think those people who tuned in for golf history may have gotten a little bit of a golf lesson, a historical golf lesson at that. I mean, we got a lesson from Babe Ruth and, you know, we, we got a lesson from Sam Bird regarding just relaxing. And it makes sense now that you say it, right? The baseball swing, they're all swinging on a plane, but you're right. When, you, when you're in that baseball stance, you know, your arms are fluid, they're not locked yeah. up, you know, I, and I know a lot of golfers. I know when I started, my arms were very tense as a golfer, you know, like you're trying to, you're trying to not do something versus do something, right? The golfer, right. the bad golfer or the average golfer is thinking, I don't want to go here. The good golfer is I want to go here, right? Going there and say, being positive allows you some fluidity, right? Some a looseness. And when you're trying to restrict yourself from going somewhere, that brings intention. And I think that's a fascinating, like, look at how baseball and golf are kind of molded together in that regard of a ball and stick game. But you think of how many people take golf lessons and they're told things like, you got to keep your left arm straight. Oh, so true. Right. Don't move. Don't move your head. Keep your head down. Yeah. Keep your head down. But one of the theories that uh, he had uh, also, uh, Bird and Ruth, uh, was that in golf, your eyes follow the ball. You don't keep your head down. Once you've hit, your eyes should, your head should be moving up as your arms are going around. You don't keep your head down or you're going to mess your swing up. It's you got to be fluid. And uh, that involves... Not looking up early, but looking up as you're hitting. And uh, that helps the swing follow, you know, stay on plane and follow through. Um, so I can see an awful lot of, of similarity between baseball and uh, golf. Although I was a decent golfer, I was a horrible baseball player. So. <laughs> I was too. We didn't realize until very late I needed glasses. <laughs> Couldn't hit a lick. Couldn't hit a lick. <laughs> we found out in high school I needed glasses. So there goes my baseball career. Now I play golf. <laughs> so thank you so much, John. I mean, this was so entertaining. I mean, you know, I, I learned something in probably every show I do, but I learned a lot on this one. And I think you know, that theory of connectivity is really fascinating when we get into Babe Ruth and, you know, the towel under the arm. And then, of course, wow. you know, Sam Bird's amazing career that most people don't even know about. Yeah, if if uh, the, your listeners want to, there is one uh, swing of Sam Bird hitting a drive on YouTube. Uh, I could only find one of those. Oh, I'll find uh, it. Yeah, I'll find it and post it. And uh, if you want to learn more about the, keeping the left arm in, you can you can go through Hogan's stuff, but you can look at some of Jimmy Ballard's stuff because he he took this uh, connectivity theory to uh, from Curtis Sam Bird. Strange. Yeah, from Sam Bird. Wow. He learned it. Uh, you know, and so here's Bird teaches Hogan this teaches Jimmy Ballard this, who goes on to be a top teacher, uh, Hal Sutton, and was another one of his students that uh, did well with this connectivity theory. And I think he probably overanalyzed it. I think it's easier just to, you know, to think about putting the... Conceptualize it, yeah. Yeah, put the handkerchief under your arm and don't overdo all your thinking. But uh, uh, if you're really interested in it, Sam or uh, uh, Jimmy Ballard takes what he was taught by Sam Bird and puts it down in DVDs and books and expensive lessons. Pretty cool, though, isn't it, though, John? It's pretty amazing (laughs) that that it all might go back to the Bronx Bomber. Yeah, it's what you got to love about golf history. We have all these unique ties, whether it's you know Machine Gun McGurk or Sam Bird and Babe Ruth. That's the beauty of golf history, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great game, and it sure brings a lot of various people together, and a lot of you know has a not only left arm connectivity, but a connectivity to a lot of interesting stories. So true. Well, John, we'll have you back on again, but thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute blessing. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, Connor. Look forward to talking to you again soon sometime. Folks, I don't know about you, but I just love this interview. Between Sam Bird's delightful second career in golf, we also heard stories of Bobby Jones and how the Sultan of Swat may have contributed to the next 100 years of golf instruction. All of that in an hour. If you enjoyed this story and would like to read more unique stories like this one, you can search for John Fisher's stories in the morning read, or you can join the Golf Heritage Society and read stories by John and other golf historians and collectors in their periodical, The Golf. Or, I suppose you can always wait to hear another story from Talking Golf History. If you enjoy the podcast, think about giving it a five-star rating and writing a review. I always enjoy reading your comments about the show. Until next time, yours, In Golf History, this is Connor T. Lewis.